This is Jason Douglas from CultureCast Radio, and you're listening to the 4D Podcast Network. Today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Robert Riggs. Robert is a Peabody Award-winning investigative reporter who's also received three coveted Alfred DuPont Awards from the Columbia University of Journalism for investigative reporting. Robert has had a vast career in journalism, including being one of the few reporters that were embedded on the front lines of the Iraq War back in 2003, the mass murder of Luby's Cafeteria in Texas, the Oklahoma City bombing, the standoff with the Republic of Texas separatist, and countless natural disasters. You've probably seen Robert reporting throughout the years as a guest correspondent on ABC, CNN, ESPN, Nightline, CBS, and even 60 Minutes. His reporting is primarily focused on the criminal justice system, which is what's led him to what he's doing now. For the past decade, Robert has been exposing the corrupt prison system in Plano, Texas, and its surrounding areas. See, back in the 90s, there was a spike in crimes due to the overpopulation of prisons. Robert discovered that some of the high-end prisoners like killers and rapists were being let out in the middle of the night and causing havoc in these cities. And this is where he began to track a serial killer by the name of Kenneth McDuff, a.k.a. the Broomstick Killer. Robert now hosts a podcast series called The True Crime Reporter, which takes you through his personal investigative journals and behind bars interviews all about the broomstick killer. When I first spoke to Robert, I joked that I could talk to him for like five hours <laughs> and uh, we actually ended up talking for two hours. So I decided to split up this interview into two episodes. This first episode that you're listening to is all about his career as a political journalist what it was like covering Watergate, the Carter administration, and the chaos that is our current political climate. Part two is all about him tracking down the broomstick killer and building his new true crime reporter 17-part series, which is now available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast on. You know, usually I tie in some kind of personal message or self-care practice that I've been working on or something that ties these two worlds together. But I'm not going to do that today because these episodes are already long enough. <laughs> Plus, I've been sitting on this interview for the past few weeks and I recently went back through it to edit it. And I I'm just so excited to share it with you. It's just so interesting. So without further ado, here is the first half of my conversation with Robert Riggs. Enjoy. So I want to start with talking politics with you uh, because you're so heavily involved in it and you have been for so long. And I want to kind of ask you from the journalism side as well about this uh, this common thing we keep seeing with like Jim Comey and, and Bob Woodward, where they hold on to information in order to boost sales or hold on to their reputation for later or whatever their selfish uh, aspirations are. 
How do you feel about that? If, if, if a journalist or somebody like that has something of value or something that should be shared, should they share it? Well, on the face of it, I thought Woodward should have shared it because, you know, the president of the United States was lying about something so serious, claiming so many lives. I think Woodward has said he didn't realize the significance of it at that time. It was so far back. But, you know, as the as the pandemic unfolded, I I think he should have. I think what happens today is people, their publishers want them to hold back some nugget that they can use to promote the book. It's about money. Right. And so I guess, where is that line at? You you know, and and is that something that I guess that's a a more dangerous question is who gets to decide what that line is? Uh, All the rules have changed. It's like we're in an age now, especially with the Internet, that there are no rules. They're, you know, making them up. And, uh, you know, everybody on Twitter is somehow a, you know, photojournalist, video journalist, everything else. So. I just see the line, that line is always moving because, you know, I covered uh, the Reagan White House, the beginning of George H.W. Bush and stuff. And, you know, even the decorum uh, has changed. You know, back in those days, uh, Sam Donaldson, the ABC correspondent, was people thought he was irreverent. He was, but he kind of kept the sanity there and uh, was funny. But now it's just. You know, the stuff that went on with Trump was just ugly. You know, like him or not, it was still the, it used to, the attitude used to be it's office of the president. You need to be respectful to the office. But, uh, you know, like so much, I think a lot of people probably got a boost in their contracts and money for being confrontational. And it kind of feeds, you know, look, he's getting all this attention. She's getting all this attention. I need to do the same. Yeah, and that that line has definitely been blurred. And I I think, I mean, I think a lot of the blame kind of weighs on the shoulder of social media, where everybody is so accessible now, right? Like, if you wanna you wanna pitch something to Tom Cruise, great, tweet at him. And when you have a president who is so active on these social medias, like Trump was, I mean, sure, I mean, Obama, uh, Obama's movement happened was sparked by social media. He had a lot of the young voters who were tweeting about him and doing these things. But he was like, and also society wasn't at that point where we were, we were engulfed in it. Um, Trump came along where everybody lives on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter. That's where you're getting your news and uh, your updates from your friends. And just like everything revolves around the online presence of someone. And then you come along, you know, Trump, who uses it as almost a weapon, right? He's tweeting 20, 30 times a day, (laughs) which is, you know, and then when he got into the White House, he continued that behavior. And so I think that curtain came down a little bit, that that veil of that untouchableness of, oh, you can't say a bad word about the president, the respect for the office, like you were saying. I think all of that goes away because of how active he was on on Twitter. Well, I was stunned by... uh, really kind of how toxic he was, the name calling and all this sort of stuff. And after having, you know, I worked as a staffer in Congress. I worked in a presidential campaign and I covered it. And, uh, you know, it's human nature. Really, politics used to be about consensus and compromise. Well, how are you going to get there if you've called people names and stuff? And it, it, it all became very personal, both Democrats and Republicans back and forth. And yeah. 
you know, uh, you know, you've even seen her now with AOC where she has said, you know, she's was frightened for her life and she's scared of members, even the speaker saying that she's scared of the QAnon member and all. Um, I just sit there and go, wow. It's, and I talked to my friends that we all came out of college, went straight to work in Congress and we all talk about it's, it's not even the same institution where we were like, what, what it was like, there was an alien, inv- you know, in invader that took over. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, it has to be night and day because you, you were, you were around for the Carter years. You were involved in that. You were, you were involved with the Reagan administration. Nixon I mean, this has, yeah, that uh, this is, this has got to be just a nightmare come to life, right? This is a holy, this is a, this is a strange planet <laughs> we're living on now compared to those days. Yeah. And I, I really do think social media is a big component of it. Um, you know, in the electronic communications world today, uh, it, it, we wear it like clothes. I mean, does a, does a fish know it's in water? Right. And I, I'm just, I look at what people say to each other, uh, online and, and I'd begin to wonder, will they, will they do that in person? And now I'm beginning to think it's, it's really come over to public life that people actually will say these rude things to each other in person. We, yeah, you're getting it spilling over now. I mean, we, I guess we've seen that with, with the Capitol riots and, and all that stuff. But even before that, you were getting a lot of people who, you know, we had the holidays coming up and people are like, well, you know, if, if you voted for Trump, you're cutting, you know, you're cutting family members out of their lives. They're like, well, I can't talk to that guy. He's a Trumper or this or that. And yeah. it's, it's, it is bleeding over into real life and people are treating each other differently in person now. And you're, and it felt there for a little bit. It got scary towards the end of the the Black Lives Matters movement, mixed with the uh, with with the counter protest. It felt like we were on the verge of a of a clash. Yeah, almost like a second civil war. Yeah, and yeah. I, maybe, I don't know if we'll go back there or not. You know, the thing about the internet is all these extremists, right and left, can rally uh, people to the cause. Uh, and when, you know, in the old days, there was no really no way to do that. It's really easy to organize around kind of any issue, good uh, or bad. I'm I'm perplexed about how you, you know, you get a handle on it. I know that when Trump was elected president, I, I had friends. I started seeing what friends were saying in Facebook. And I, I really didn't. We really never discussed politics. And I mean, lots of friends. And yeah. suddenly I'm like, wow. They're really out there on the left. And the other ones, wow, they're really out there on the right. So much so that they're in these shouting matches and you find yourself going through, you know, hiding or defriending. But I'm like, wow. Uh, and I think the new thing is I, I never saw people getting so agitated about politics. Um, you know, the, the last time it even came close was in 68, the anti-war movement. It spilled onto the convention floor of the Democrats in Chicago and in the streets. Um, but I all feel I mean, there's a sense of this that you know, it, that stayed in the streets. You know, it didn't go into the Capitol building. Um, there, you, things get so amplified and amped up um, that I, that's you know. I, sometimes I want to say. <laughs> You need to take up knitting. <laughs> <Soccer>. <laughs> you, need <Soccer>. <laughs> you need a hobby. You need a hobby. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it does again, weigh on the shoulders of social media. And, and this is what I've been saying about the generation coming up behind me is that, you know, my generation wanted to change things. Um, but we were told, you know, the gatekeepers wouldn't let us, you know, like, oh, I don't know why I have to go to church or I don't know why I have to get married or buy a house. And then you have the gatekeepers, which is generation before me saying, well, it's because my father did it and his father. And you have kind of like this traditionalism holding us back. Whereas the generation behind us, there's two things, but these mo- this movement that's happening is a, the communication, right? With the social media, they are able to connect like no other generation before they're able to mobilize and 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 really communicate on a completely different level than we've ever seen um, through TikTok and Twitter and all these things that we were talking about and two i think of a lot of changes we're going to see in the future they have the same questions that we did but my generation will now be the gatekeepers in the future I think a lot of that traditionalism is going to go away. I mean, you know, uh, my girlfriend has a, a 13-year-old and she's so politically connected because of TikTok uh, that she watches and all these people that are that are saying these different things in these little seven or 10 second or 30 second videos. And, you know, her and her friends are talking about this transgender movement and equal rights and, and male toxicness in the world and all of these issues. And they're 13 years old. And so that trickle down effect of social media is, is happening younger and younger now. And it's, it, it's, it's, I think it's a, going to affect a lot of different things in the future. Well, I do think it's good for even young people to be informed. You know, are you equipped with the knowledge of history and other stuff really to how to evaluate it and what have you? And I would say, you know, whether it's a transgender issue or anything like that, well, go out there and get in the trenches and knock on doors for your favorite candidate during election time. I mean, get out there and do the hard work or work on social for them. I think a lot of people are just, just sit and just left and right, just go off, mm-hmm. just vent. They're stuck in the comment feed instead of actually going out into the world and trying to create that change. And that that is the scary part is you have a lot of people that are very active again in in that in those comments and they're they're neck and neck and they just want to yell at somebody where they're right or left or whatever. But then they're they're not willing to actually do the work that makes the change. Um, You know, I was listening to um, that sheriff that spoke in Dallas um, during the camp right before the campaigns in 2016 after the shooting. And he had said uh, he had said, if you want to see change in your community, be the change in in your community. So if you want to change the way the police force is, sign up for the police force. Um, and that's stuck with me. That's something that's, that, that radiates still to this day where it's like, if, if, if you really want to see change, start being the change, start being more active towards the things you want to see. Yeah. That was David Brown, the police chief here. He's moved on to Chicago, but, uh, yeah, he really rose to the occasion. You know, was very articulate in it. Um, and, you know, I think he would have done a good job of, of working with the Black Lives Matter people and later in their demonstrations and stuff, too. Um, but it almost like it almost becomes like anarchy. Well, and listen, the Capitol on the January 6th, that's just out and out anarchy, all those multiple yeah. moves. Uh, and I was uh, I was sh- I was sh- taken aback by it. Now, I know a lot of people have said, why were so many people uh, 
uh, upset about that and not so upset with the way the Black Lives Matters protesters are treated it in front of the White House. Uh, I really think, you know, rather than the group, the reaction was more it was the U.S. Capitol, which is the symbol of democracy around the world. It was referred to as the People's House. And what a lot of people don't realize, you know, it was uh, Lincoln finished the dome. The dome was unfinished during Lincoln's inauguration. He made a big point. It, it needed to be finished uh, as that symbol. But also the, the architects, and I've got a degree in architecture, the architecture had actually, architects had included symbols from history that reflected idealism, democracy, equality. And I think subliminally, that's what really set a lot of people off that were watching like that, you know, that it was about the building and the place. Yeah, it was, you know, for me, it was it was context. You know, it was you have, you know, when people started talking about those two groups, the Black Lives Matter movement and these, I, I don't know, Trump loyalist, I guess, would be the, the blanketed term. Um, or patriots as they, <laughs> as they like to be called or whatever. Um, so when you have these two groups of people, you can't put them on an equal playing field because it's a context, right? So you have, you had the Black Lives Matter movement who that's happening for equality. That's happening. So police literally stop shooting unarmed black people versus a bunch of people who are uh, who are getting empowered by the idea of of an uprising against their own country right their their whole goal was to disrupt the election results they made that very clear um and so when you look at those context clues there it's almost impossible to put them in the same field and talk about them even in the same conversation when you when you when you are it's like this is apples and oranges. This this doesn't make any sense. You have somebody who's fighting for equality and equal rights versus somebody who's literally trying to overthrow election results. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, well, you know, yeah. You're a comedian. And the thing I've noticed is that the Republicans and Democrats cannot laugh together about politics and stuff anymore. There was a time they, they could. Uh, but that doesn't happen anymore. When I was there, I arrived as a staffer in 1972. And uh, next door to the, to the uh, Senate office building was a hotel called the Carroll Arms. And there was a nightclub bar in the basement. And a political comedian named Mark Russell, he later became very famous on PBS, and he moved to another locale in Washington. But he would he was a pianist and a uh, comedian. And he had all these songs he would make up about bills in Congress and members. And both parties, members and staff, would be sitting in there just in a hysterical laughing over each other. Today, that'd break out in a fight. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's so it's so hard to to agree on that. We are living in in such a polarizing time politically. Um, where, and, and it's, but it's, it's so weird because it's also mixed with the most, I think, politically active time. Again, like you have 12 and 13 year olds on TikTok who are learning about politics and who are talking about fighting for change versus, you know, 
60-year-old people who are storming the Capitol building. <laughs> this is the most politically active we've been, yet politically polarized we've ever been. And I, I don't put all the weight on Trump's shoulders. Of course, you can't do that. You can't put all the weight on someone, um, even though he's, you know, he's, I would say he's not the sickness, but he's definitely a symptom, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think a little bit... Uh, more so it weighs on the way we are reporting the news. Uh, a lot of the arguments we're having now is this, you know, in the past three or four years, we've been fighting this I- idea of what's real news and what's quote unquote fake news. And there, either way you look at it, it doesn't seem to be much unity. It seems to be even that our, our news are polarized. You could you could turn on CNN and you can turn on Fox News or or even MSNBC and you'll get a completely different story. They've picked sides, and the reason I think they pick sides it's money. It's about money, and you know I worked for CBS and all and the other other station, and it really became about money. What can we get out of this audience? And I think we we saw a little clue of that back. At the beginning, uh, the elections of Trump, when Les Moonves, now the dethroned, you know, head of CBS over the sex allegations, sex abuse allegations, you know, he made a comment that Trump was the best thing ever for their ratings. And, you know, you guys, you were, you're giving them a free pass. You weren't asking them the hard questions that you usually ask other people, but he was great, great for ratings, great for titillation. And a lot of news, it moved that way. It's hard to find a middle ground anymore. Of course, the country has changed a lot since we used to have Walter Cronkite. We called him Uncle Walter. You know, he'd be on the small screen in the in the kitchen, and you thought he's a member of the family. <laughs> right. um, yeah, I mean, Walter Cronkite. For your young listeners, I mean, he was a a just an iconic figure on television for trust. And when mm-hmm. he went to Vietnam and, and did a report, he'd been a World War II correspondent. But he he said the war is unwinnable. You know, this is a waste of people's lives and money. Uh, Lyndon Johnson and I had a friend that was working there looked at his aides and said, "If I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost the nation." And Johnson announced he wasn't going to run for re-election. It was over. Wow, that's the kind of sort of power that used to be. Of course, now you. You've got a very fractured news environment, so many sources of information, lots on Facebook. And, you know, I, I don't know what the vetting is anymore for accuracy. Um, because you'll see huge blunders in the New York Times. You know, they've had a scandal over a, a podcast they were doing and apparently a, you know, major figure and it was fake. Didn't really see anybody get fired over that and called out. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So um, journalism is a, you know, there's a lot to get their house in order. I don't think they can because so much of it has become entertainment. You know, cable network news. I mean, good grief. By four o'clock, there's not news there. It's talk. It's opinion. And I think they're always kind of trying to figure out who they are. But if you go to MSNBC, certainly the left, you go to Fox, the right. Um, and, and they will kind of, uh, you see them pandering to their offices with quote, fake news, inaccurate stuff, uh, falsehoods, but it gets, it gets eyeballs, it gets ratings and it sort of, you know, they become self-confirming echo chambers for the people 
watching. And, uh, why? I mean, it's just like nothing I've, I've ever seen. Yeah. It's so funny. You bring up Walter. He was like Mr. Rogers for adults. You know, <laughs> he was just, you could trust him. He was, he was again, a member of the family. He, he sold it to you straight and he was reliable and, and he, he seemed unbiased at the time. And I guess, you know, obviously we, we were living in less toxic or less, less polarizing, uh, wow. times back then, but yeah, he was, he was a trusted name and, and to, to bring it back again to this idea of social media and everybody on there is an expert now, it's so hard to figure out who to trust and who to listen yeah. to. Um, well, the listening, I think that's a big part that's missing of trying to listen to the other side. Uh, right. I, one, one of my friends, there was a whole group of us started in Congress together, some state, and he's, he's, he has one of the largest, most influential lobbying companies in, in D.C. And I had told him, and he's a Democrat, and I had told him, I said, you know, Trump's going to win. He was like, what are you smoking? <laughs> yeah, I said, no, Trump's going to win. He'll win. I was telling this leading up to the election. And then he calls me the next day after the election. He went, I, I'm, sh- I'm shocked. I'm stunned. How did you know this? How do you know it? And I said, well, here's the way. You live inside the Beltway. You guys just all talk to each other, but I'm out here in Texas and I go out into East Texas, uh, to rural areas. And I said, you know, Paris, Texas family, I've got family there. And I said, you just need to go to the super Walmart, stand in line with farmers <laughs> and everybody else. And they feel forgotten. They feel yeah. Washington has not left them. Their, their towns are deteriorating. There are no jobs. Uh, like the town I mentioned, I, I saw the middle class jobs go to China or, or, or go overseas, a lot to China. And I mean by the thousands. You, that has left a, a bitterness. And there's so many communities like that, I'm sure. I, I think in the steel communities, you probably still got a re- residual effects of that. Yeah, I grew up in Ohio in the Midwest and all of that. And this and the same thing. Whenever I go back to Ohio, it's you know, I I grew up in a town that I graduated with seventy-two kids in my class, like a very rural farm town. Yeah. Same same narrative. Yeah. And I also you know, and I grew up, you know, growing up in the South and rural Texas and all. In my childhood, I I experienced the racism. Uh I can remember as a child there were water fountains marked colored in white. Uh, restroom doors marked the same way. I think we've, we've come an amazing way since then that we had an African American president, two terms, African American vice president now, but I'd still do that. Uh, we still have such scars and wounds from slavery in this country. And it, hey, it wasn't just the United States. I mean, this goes way back to Spain at the time of Christopher Columbus and the uh, Great Britain and, you know, it, the Egyptians, the Romans. But I really do think there is some, we've got to come to terms with that somehow of what do we do? How do we have a rational conversation? And, and, and it's probably the toughest conversation we could face in this country. Yeah. And it's so when, when talking about racism too, I think, I think we do get locked into this idea of, of slavery being that, that, that keystone moment, but we got to remember too, like racism wasn't so long ago. You you were talking about the sixties right there about the separating water fountains and stuff. That's, yeah. that's way more recent than slavery. And 
racism to me it's it's so dumb because you know you have all of these races that are mixing now in modern times and have been for 20 30 40 50 years everybody's tan in the future <laughs> like the things you're fighting for now and the things you're angry about everybody's tan in the future <laughs> like there is no there's not going to be this separation of of you know of of races you know 20 30 years from now everybody's going to be beautiful mixed <laughs> babies <laughs> but you know the the racism has come around the the police violence and yes. abuses and, you know, I've got this podcast called True Crime Reporter, where we go back and look at cases from my career and all. And so I've, I've had a lot of years of experience dealing with law enforcement and everything. And my sense of these officers, uh, I mean, this is my opinion, and like the Floyd case, the guy that, to my sight, clearly killed George Floyd. I would dare say he was abusive to everybody. Uh, he just seems to have that attitude. I, I know officers that I've got one officer. He's in one of my podcasts that who specialized in uh, death and custody and use of force. As soon as he saw it, he called me and he said, Oh my God, we, we just watched a murder on TV. Um, the thing I've seen over the years is uh, a lack of training. The, uh, you'll see the city councils and mayors and other get all outraged. And, and I want to say to them, wait a minute. That's your police department. You hire the chief. You set the policy. You're, you're part of this problem. And the thing I've seen over the years is the first thing cut, the first thing underfunded is training and they don't do background checks. And I think the background checks and the training are critical to making sure you've got People, men and women of all ethnic backgrounds on the force that aren't bringing some attitude, bias, uh, power trip with them, you know, that sort of thing. I, I interviewed a, a career state trooper, th like 35 years here, never has had one complaint on race or anything about force following during his career. But I did ask him, I said, hey, what? What is the most important quality for a state trooper, an officer, in your opinion? And, you know, I think most people say, you know, good shooter, that sort of thing. No, he said, compassion, compassion. Wow. And he said, I yeah. feel like the, tra the, the, the academies are turning out robots and they walk up to your window stern and, and immediately just piss you off with their attitude. Not nice. You know, he said, I, I always have a conversation about, How's your day going? You know, this sort of thing. Now, again, back to training and the kind of people we select. Yeah, I look at bad cops kind of like bad boyfriends. Like if he's going to hit you once, he's going to hit you every day. <laughs> you know, like like these abusive relationships you hear about all the time and they only get better or they temporarily get better when they get caught. You know, when when something happens and goes public, then they're on their best behavior for a little bit. But that's not going to be the last time he hits you. And and same thing with cops. When you have these slap on the wrist that happen where, you know, a, co a cop will get caught up in, in some in some bad stuff and then they suspend him for two weeks or even a month and, you know, or maybe take away his pay for a week or 90 days or something. That's not going to be the last time he does 
bad shit, <laughs> you know? And, and yeah. you're right that that training is, is so important and we need more compassion, more empathy and, and less of those robotic security guard uh, behaviors. Yeah. And I, I think this, I think we're talking about a very small fraction, just like you know, right. yeah. who kill patients on the operating tables for malpractice, same thing. Uh, lawyers who blow cases, you know, reporters who get it wrong. Uh, but, um, you know, the doctor and the police officer, there are deadly consequences to their, to their mistakes, actions, malfeasance. Yeah. And I, and I think what we're getting caught up in now is the, you know, we're talking about defunding the police, which I think is terrible phrasing because automatically, you know, you have this, it sparks the argument on the right of like this extremism, right? They think that we're just trying to get rid of all the police. And it's like, well, that's not what we're saying. We're saying to, to reappropriate the funds. And I think a lot of times in society these days, we get caught up on these hashtags or these phrasings, and we're not fully explaining what we mean because we're going after a, a catchy, again, hashtag or whatever to spread around like Black Lives Matter. And then you get the counter argument. Well, all lives matter. Well, no shit. <laughs> like, we're not saying your life doesn't. <laughs> and, you know, you get that that friction there. And the same thing happens with, with defund the police. You know, you have these this this broad term of, of defund the police. And when people hear it, they go, but what happens if I get robbed? What happens if I need them? What happens if blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we're not trying to get rid of them. We're trying to improve them. We're trying to reappropriate those funds and make them so they work better. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think we, we need to work on that verbiage just as a, a society moving forward. Well, I do think, too, before they start talking about reappropriate, look at what has been appropriated and where is it going? Oh, yeah. We have $8.5 million a month going to LAPD out here. Yeah, but uh, and usually the police payroll is probably one of the biggest budget items in any city budget anywhere. Police and fire, biggest, and also their pensions. But take that aside, I, again, I... I'm about, you really need to go look back, look at training and how that is executed through the whole department and stuff and monitored. And I don't think it happens. And I don't even think the money is put there for it to happen. Hey guys, I know you're enjoying this podcast right now, but I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might also enjoy. Today's episode is sponsored by the Is This Entertainment podcast. The hosts Jacob and Ben are two self-described hermits that play music together. They have episodes about music they're listening to, the TV shows and movies that they're watching. And recently on the Is This Entertainment podcast, they recap the last season of The Mandalorian. They're also reviewing episodes of WandaVision with some comedic and perhaps strange philosophical takes. I know WandaVision has just been taking over my Twitter feed right now, so if that's something you're into, I highly suggest checking out this podcast. Ben and Jacob are new to the podcasting world, so show them some love. Go over there, like, share, subscribe to the podcast, let them know how they're doing. You can also find them on Twitter at isthisentpod. That's isthisentpod. And you can visit them anytime at isthisentertainment.com. Head on over to Is This Entertainment Podcast and subscribe.
it's so interesting to see what happens with this new administration because it seems like he, he, he you know, he has this uh, a very overreaching agenda, I feel like. I feel like he's trying to, uh, I mean, of course, every president tries to promise all the things to all the people, but um, it'll be interesting to see what actually happens with the police force under this administration because we saw under the Trump administration, how he would placate to them. And, you know, there's even that one, the footage from that one rally where he's saying, you police need to be rougher when you arrest yeah. people, <laughs> what, you know, what a thing to say. <laughs> bang their heads before you put them in the car and stuff like that. You're like, yeah. <laughs> read the room, dude. Uh, <laughs> in terms of policing that, you know, the president, uh, he really just has the bully pulpit to say something right. like that instead of tone. Now, there are federal dollars that go out to the departments, and you can have some control that way of the federal dollars that go out. Um, the, the person I thought was really in tune was George H.W. Bush. When he came into the, the press room, no notes, nothing. He knew everybody by first name, would look around, hey, Robert, this, and stuff. And he had such a breadth of experience. He'd been in Congress. He'd been an ambassador. He'd been director of the CIA. Uh, and he was really about personal relationships. Uh, you know, he was known for uh, writing notes to everybody. He met with somebody, he sent them a handwritten note, especially overseas, always sending out these, these notes, which were very personal. And, you know, he, he kind of, uh, cultivated a lot of friendship and, uh, just good feelings, you know, among That's, world leaders. Uh, so interesting. Um, Bush won, uh, <laughs> the Phantom Menace. Uh, he, <laughs> he's actually the first president that, that I remember my parents talking about in, in, in a good way. Um, yeah. you know, the, and, you know, I, I come from a democratic family and all that. But again, back then, those parties still kind of bled together a little bit. Um, they weren't so polarizing. And, uh, but yeah, he was one of the first presidents that I remember my parents being excited about and talking about and, and, yeah. and really liking. Well, uh, I can remember the majority leader of the house was Jim Wright. He was from Texas and I covered him. And I can remember being in his office one day and he was all upset because uh, Tip O'Neill was going down to the White House and drinking whiskey with Reagan and talking and all this. And, and, um, right was what they called a yellow dog Democrat, you know, vote for a dog before anyone else. <laughs> right. and, 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 uh, he was all upset, you know, that O'Neill's down there giving stuff away or, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, Hey, listen, it was a, it, it uh, politics used to be about relationships and people. And, you know, so they were able to get, they were able to get things done. Um, it's extremely hard. I've, I've talked to people, you know, doing uh, legislation and all. It is so hard now. Uh, well, I'll give you an example. Um, I've got friends that are lobbyists, and they're in lobbying firms in which half of the lobbyists in that firm are Democrats and half are Republicans because anyone with a past Democratic association cannot get in the door with a Republican and vice versa. Didn't used to be that way. That's, That's how... Polar. That's so wild. Yeah. And of course, we're a much bigger country now in different cultures. Um, but, you know, we have a, we're facing a lot of challenges outside this country, the future, China and other things going on. So we're going to have to find some way to, you know, on many issues to get on the same page of music.
Yeah, and you've you've had such a, a a giant career. Like we spoke a little bit um, before we started, how I was going over your your background and your and your biographies and all this, and you, you have an overwhelming uh, uh, life. <laughs> and I was saying, I was like, I could talk to you for five or six hours, and you've been on the front lines in, in the Iraq War. You've been on the uh, right out front of the Oklahoma City. Uh, uh, homo bombing and you've right. you've just yeah. I, I who hurt you why are you doing these things <laughs> it's my so dangerous wife, I, <laughs> my wife who i lay, i married later in life used to say how is it that you end up in these firestorms all the time what yes <laughs> you're on the front line of the, of these of these historical moments um have you ever felt has there ever been has anything come across your desk that you went that's too much. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. It's too dangerous. Um, well, certain things on terrorism, I covered terrorism a while. Um, but no, I mean, there's a lot out there, you know, that you need to, I probably one of the riskiest things I ever did when I was in, in the first season of the true crime reporter podcast is about this. There was massive corruption in the parole and prison system in Texas. And people were paying bribes to get out of prison. And we focused on a serial killer who was let out. He'd been on death row. And, man, he left a string of victims. All kinds of corruption behind it. Now, I started exposing this. And suddenly, you couldn't get your get-out-of-free-jail card anymore. And... There were gang members and others really mad at Robert because I'd blown the deal. They weren't going to get out. Um, one of the riskier areas too would be police corruption. And there is, there has been gross police corruption in departments and, you know, they're armed and they can pull you over. That's, that's, that's a concern. My wife used to say, could you just stay away from the, any big police girl? <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that you, again, you'll, you'll go to, you'll go to Iraq during the, the, the beginnings of the Iraq war and, and all these things and these front lines. But, uh, you know, going against the people who are supposed to make you feel safe and protected, <laughs> you're like, man, fuck that. <laughs> That's too dangerous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, going to Iraq. Now, so I, I did some of the Contra War, just a tiny time period. And my crew and all, crew and I got kind of into it with a Honduran soldier that was kind of an attempted coup going on. And he had an M16. And suddenly, uh, we didn't speak Spanish well. There was a faster dialect. And he put the barrel of the American made M16 in my ribs. And we thought, uh-oh. Uh, and at that time, there had been a lot of executions all through Latin America. News crews, there was a horrendous thing where nuns were executed. And um, I noticed he had jump wings on his lapel, and I'd gone to the jump school at Fort Benning, and I just started rough conversation about it. And brought It took all the tension away. But after that, I said, I will never go into a war zone or anything unless I'm with the United States Army, armed forces. I know that there'll be medics, there'll be clean water and somebody for protection. And then, you know, the, the, the thing that happened too is that when we got into Al Qaeda and 
you know, later now ISIS and all, um, the journalists became as big a target as the military. And remember the Wall Street Journal reporter who was taken and behaved. yeah, yeah, it was so, terrifying. Yeah, so you you realize that hey, I'm in, I uh, I am a target, and so to go out there and freelance it on your own. Uh, so, so you went over there with just a just a small group to 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 do investigate. You didn't go over there with the military to to Iraq to Iraq. Yeah. Oh no, no, I was an embedded reporter with a unit, and you know, and then I did it in Gulf War. But the incident in Honduras during the Contra War just taught me a hey, I'm going I'm yeah. going to mil- our military from now on. And then things had really changed by Iraq with terrorism and stuff, where you know. Any American, as far as they were, the terrorists were concerned, you were infidels and part of the problem, and you were a target. Yeah, I, I went over with the armed forces uh, for comedy, and we were we did uh, we did eleven countries in like uh, oh, sixteen or seventeen days. Yeah, yeah, it was super fun. Yeah, I bet you had great audiences. I know they appreciate. Oh, they appreciated so much over there, and it's such a different perspective coming back home. I mean, you think you you know what these guys are going through, and you know, and you think of the military overseas or they're on base. You have no idea what they're going through over there. It was a completely different than than what they kind of, you know, show you in movies and this and that. And and uh, even when we were in Kosovo, we that was our first stop, and uh, they right outside the base. Um, they were saying that sometimes they take shots uh, from cannons and, and different things over, over the wall there. Yep. And they were saying, Hey, if that happens, you'll hear an alarm. Like they were casual about it. Like if that happens, you'll hear an alarm go off and just stay in your bunk. And we're like, what? And then in, in Germany, when we were there, um, we did a bunch of stops in Germany. I think right outside of Frankfurt, um, we stayed on this, giant military base there and a big complex and it had a, like a, it was like enclosed area and they had hotels and stuff inside these, these, like these walls, these barrier walls. And uh, all the alarms start sounding one night after dinner and everything goes on lockdown. And we thought that something had happened that there was like, an, so we're all, you know, nobody's telling us anything because they can't, you know, all the soldiers are rushing us back to these, uh, these, these private areas, these protected, you know, areas. And, uh, and they're like, we, we can't tell you what's happening. We just need you to stay here. And uh, luckily what had happened was just a, somebody had been drinking and they made a wrong turn oh. and they were drunk driving and they crashed through the front gates Oh. of this giant military base. <laughs> and I just remember thinking what a nightmare it would be if you had a few drinks, you're on your way home, you make a wrong turn, and the next thing you know, <laughs> you have the American <laughs> army, like the, the U.S. military just surrounding your <laughs> fucking <Yeah>. Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah, I'll it's terrifying. You, I'll tell you, I've just been thinking, I'll tell you where I won't go. Wouldn't ever take any assignment, go there, never would go there. Mexico. Really? Yeah, the cartels run the country. Yeah, you hear so many horror stories there. They're in Russia where they they have almost like a like a like a bribe war happening when you know they wait for American tourists when they when they are there the first few days and you know uh you have to give them X amount of money or else you're going to jail. Mexican journalists murdered there 
So you don't really, you don't get the truth. You can't do, you know, you don't get it. There's such corruption in the government. The cartels run the country. And along the border and other areas, I would never go there. And of course, the big thing there in like Nigeria and other places now and certain places in Africa is, is uh, kidnap ransom. Big, yeah. big business. And, you know, the big, uh, big international corporations, there's a huge business. They buy hostage insurance and, uh, uh, just in case. And part of that insurance involves there, there are, um, I call it, I kind of call them the black waters of the intelligence world, but there are these firms and they're, they're made up of intelligence analysts. They have their own intelligence system and they have X. Uh, it might be in one area, ex-British SAS, other areas, SEALs, French special uh, ops people all around the world on call. They're all you know retired, but this is their their business. Right. And if there's a hostage situation, they very quietly go take care of it and get the people back. They don't wait for any government, anything like that. But it's big business. That's what the level of the threat is these days. So there are certain places that. You don't want to go. Uh, I mean, I've got a, uh, friend that was, a uh, fugitive hunter. Uh, you, you talk, you know, he's been in gun battles and everything else and he does, uh, private security work. Now he will not step foot across that border. <laughs> wow. So yeah. And we just, the American public, uh, they just don't get the word out and, I have another podcast that I do with a former federal prosecutor and uh, he prosecuted the branch Davidians for murder. He's done terrorists. He's done everything. And people will call him all the time. Well, you know, we're thinking about going down to a resort in Mexico. Is it safe? And he's, he'll always say only until your daughter's abducted <laughs> and the million dollar ransom is up. You know? Right. Yeah. So that's the place I uh-uh, wouldn't go. I wouldn't even take story assignments. And I had some friends uh, years ago. We did a we did a documentary on uh, uh, heroin coming into a very affluent suburb, Plano, Texas, north of Dallas. And it was killing teenagers left and right. This was the home of Frito-Lay potato chips. I mean, it's a big affluent area. And these were middle class kids. And it was called Chiva. They didn't know it was heroin and they were, they were snorting it and they were putting the powder in marijuana and other things. But we did a whole uh, deal in this is like 1999, a documentary. And we traced it from, I traced it from Plano to the border. And then I had some colleagues, they went into Mexico and they had one day they had a very, very close call. Uh, they were out with some Mexican journalists. They uh, found a poppy field, and it turned out the poppy field was being protected by uh, federal Mexican troops. And uh, oh my god! Oh yeah, yeah. And it was it was just like what you see in Narcos. It's and so I, funny. I, I've played Plano so many times, and I've bought weed there so many times, and now I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> to buy weed in Plano now. <laughs> so um, the um, yeah, that's the that's the place. That's the place. Wow. And so you've been in you've been an investigative journalist for so long. What what drew you to that? 
Well, um, you know, I was the member of Congress I got went to work for started the Watergate investigation, and I was kind of a gopher. And in in those days, if you needed information, you, you had to go to the Library of Congress, and there were these massive stacks of index cards. I I mean, I think there were some twenty two thousand trays of cards, and you know. I mean, you talk about it was searching for the proverbial needle in a haystack. You needed like a 10K or an 8K that gave the financial history of a company. You had to go to the Securities and Exchange Commission and go into the archives and hand pull it. Whereas, you know, I could click one click now online, but I had a knack for doing it. And I got assigned to a committee that was invested, a defense committee was investigating Watergate related uh corruption. And I dealt with uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times correspondents, CBS, particularly Bob Schieffer of CBS. Bob was a Texan from Fort Worth. He was the congressional correspondent. Uh, because I worked for the chairman and was kind of under his wing, I also knew politics. I've been around politics. Everybody else in there was from the, they were ex-CIA and military intelligence. And they were scared to death of the, of the press in a sense. If I say the wrong thing, my career is over. So <clears throat> I, I had a little shelter from that since I worked for the chairman and I dealt with them all the time. And I thought, what a great job, because the one thing that bothered me, there were still things uncovered that would never see the light of day. And I, my feeling was, Hey, it's the taxpayers dollars. You're all getting paid by the taxpayers. Everybody should know this. It ought to be all out there. And so that's what led me to it. And, and ironically, it was I, Bob Schieffer helped me get started. He was the CBS correspondent. I went to him. He didn't really know me. He just knew I was a Texan. He knew I'd be. And he really helped me get started. And it was that Texas thing, you know, fellow Texan. Um, and it did turn out to be everything I expected in those days of, uh, you know, you felt like, well, you, all of my, I, everybody I met along the way, both print and television investigative, you felt it was a calling. And, uh, you know, it was, it's cliche, but speaking truth to power. Uh, you know, I did the Texas legislature and, you know, you'd uncover all kinds of little boondoggle special interest deals there. So that, that was it really it was just about, Hey, t- uh, we're going to tell the public what the policy is and how it's being made and where the money is being spent. hope you enjoyed the first half of this conversation with Robert Riggs. If you want to find out more about him or his podcast series, you can check out truecrimereporter.com. That's truecrimereporter.com. And if you're interested in checking out his series, you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast at. And you can always follow along with me on Twitter or Instagram or wherever you're at, at Malone Comedy. That's at Malone Comedy. Now stay tuned. The second half of my conversation with Robert is up next. Enjoy. Enjoy.